and thank you for tuning in to the occlusal table. I'm one of your hosts, Taylor Jackson. And today we have the pleasure of having dentists on our panel to discuss their experiences, their journey to general dentistry, and taking a deeper look into residency. Let's get started. Dr. Sabrina Porsche Fennell is originally from South Carolina and obtained her doctorate degree from Meharry Medical College. She completed her general practice residency at the VA Medical Center in Memphis, Tennessee. Prior to establishing her practice, Destin Dental, she practiced general dentistry in the greater Nashville area. Dr. Porsche Fennell is an active member of the American Association of Women Dentists and the Academy of General Dentistry. Dr. Porsche Fennell currently serves the Bellevue, Tennessee area and surrounding areas with exceptional dental care. And next we have Dr. Zalexis Morris, who is originally from Alexandria, Virginia, and she received her bachelor's degree from North Carolina A&T in 2012. In 2015, Dr. Morris moved to Nashville, Tennessee, and then received her master's and doctorate from Meharry Medical College in 2016 and 2020, respectively. Currently, Dr. Moore serves as the chief resident um, at Meharry's general practice residency. So let's give it up for our guest. All right. So let's go ahead and jump right into it. So when did you choose to pursue a GPR and why? So um, first, I want to say thank you for having me on um, the podcast. This is um, really fun. Um, The first time I chose, I actually started off, I wanted to be an oral surgeon. um, And that was my first year. And I dabbled with that. Then I moved and I decided, no, well, maybe I liked peds. And then I got into um, pre-operative, like pre-clinical operative. And then I noticed, like, I really liked restorative dentistry as well. And so since I really liked all these different aspects of dentistry, I decided in my third year, you know, doing a GPR and being a general dentist, that's something that I really wanted to pursue because you can um, tackle all aspects of dentistry. Yes, thank you for having me. Uh, My name is Dr. Porsche Fennell, as Taylor said. Um, I began my GPR journey in school. I thought I wanted to do endodontics, and I um, was kind of interested in it at first. And then as I began to do endodontic cases at school, I was like, you know, I don't think this is for me. Um, and I didn't really consider uh, any other specialty just because at the time um, I was a junior, so I was about to get married. So I actually got married my junior year of um, dental school. And so, of course, that kind of limited uh, what I wanted to do or kind of where I wanted to end up because I knew I had a spouse to think about when it came to location. Um, so I decided that let let me do a GPR just to uh, get my feet wet 
Uh, I also thought about going, instead of doing a residency, actually going to practice. But um, as I applied for different jobs, I wasn't getting the job opportunities that I thought I was going to get. So that ultimately made me decide, okay, I definitely need to do a GPR so I could have that extra year of experience. And then after that, pursue a clinical career uh, in general dentistry. Excellent. So then with that being said, um, for our listeners that, you know, don't know to choose between an AEGD or a GPR um, to expand that knowledge, uh, what do you think in your best definition is the difference uh, between the two? So I feel like with my experience um, with a GPR, especially the one that I'm in currently, it's more hospital-based dentistry. So we rotate through um, internal medicine and anesthesia, and we actually we work in the emergency department, like on call with emergency patients. Um, and then with the AEGD, I feel like it's more private practice focused. Like a lot of them, you aren't on call. Um, you may do a lot of like dental technology and um, things of that nature. Uh, I don't know, Dr. Fennell knows a little more about AEGDs, but I know like with me, I knew that I wanted to do a GPR because I wanted that on-call experience. Um, I wanted to be able to uh, work in the, in the hospitals. Like I'm actually considered um, a hospital, like a, a doctor that works in the hospital. So that's something that I was really, you know, interested in. And then we do a lot of sedations. And so the sedation aspect, I was interested in that. Um, I did interview with the AEGD and that, that had more didactic work, um, a lot of research and things of that nature. Yes, to piggyback off what Dr. Moore said, uh, uh, AGD is definitely more didactic, it's definitely more uh, evidence-based dentistry, so you do quite a bit of reading, you know, journals, um, comparing um, different dental materials, uh, just different things of that nature. I actually had an experience where uh, when I was at the VA, we actually went over to um, the University of Tennessee because they had an AGD program. And so we uh, worked with a lot of the uh, students that were in that program and they pretty much did a lot of implants. I think it does depend on what school you attend as well with the AGD because they do have maybe some that kind of focus on some aspects of dentistry, like some of them like using lasers. So they have laser training, you know, during that, or like I said, implants. Um, but for me, uh, participating in a, in a GPR, um, the same with Dr. Morris. I wanted the hospital experience. I did do venipuncture when I was there. So I was actually in the GI um, area where I learned to do venipuncture. Um, you also do ACLS um, training. So I had my ACLS certification once I finished. So it just kind of gave you more um, credential, so to speak, uh, when it comes to that, because you do work in the hospital. So if you do want to have hospital privileges at some point in your dental career, um, doing a GPR would definitely help uh, with that experience and being in a hospital setting. 
Oh, that's awesome. Okay. So then diving deeper into the residency portion, what's it like or your experience there? What was your first day like? Um, What's the process like to even get into a GPR? So with me, um, actually applying to GPR, so everyone knows that we have the pass idea pass application portal there's some that are pass and there's some that's match so um a lot of programs you have to really like look on their website to see when you have a pass a, a program that participates in pass you can go to the interview and they can offer you the spot the, the spot right on the spot actually you can offer the position right on the spot and so um with the program that i'm in now that's actually a match program so you go through your adia pass um, application portal and i sent my application in to different programs i applied to maybe like five or six programs and um I went through the interview process, just like if you go through with oral surgery or endo or PEDS, you do the same thing, um, travel to all these different programs and you see if the, if they, if you like them and if they like you and you can either do the match process or do the past process. Um, with my experience, since, you know, every, everyone starts July 1st, it was actually a good experience because you're kind of like, thrown in there and everybody's on their different rotations and I started in oral surgery with my um as my rotation and I honestly I felt like okay well I'm not the strongest in oral surgery but a lot of the professors and the attendings they they helped me you know get comfortable with different procedures and you know just made me feel more confident with uh general dentistry. So my experience was similar, um, kind of with Dr. Morris itself. I only applied to two residencies. So I don't know if you guys remember when I said that I was married or getting married. So at the time that I applied the residency, um, we were settled in Tennessee. So I only had, you know, few options in Tennessee as far as GPR programs are concerned. And so um, I guess I stepped out on faith because my program only accepted two residents and it was not match. It was like you had to interview and they had to select you. And so um, I interviewed um, with a lot of people that didn't look like me. (laughs) Um, So I was just kind of thinking, I'm not going to get it because, you know, what are they going to, I mean, because, I mean, these are people from UT and other places. And so I was just like, hmm, I'm just going to give it a try and see what happens. So I actually interviewed at the VA in Memphis and I interviewed at Maharish GPR program. Um, Fortunately, I did get accepted to both. But I ultimately weighed the option of, I mean, because Meharry is home. It is home. It's comfortable. You know, you know everybody there. Um, You know, you, you know, but I also wanted to be challenged. I wanted to grow. I wanted to have a different environment. I assumed with the VA that because the patients do not have to worry financially how they're going to pay for things, that my experience would be different because 
I could do more or or create treatment plans that maybe people would not accept outside, you know, like maybe private practice or something like that because of the cost. So I was like, well, that's not going to hinder me at the VA because these people aren't paying for anything. However, when people don't pay for services, sometimes they don't appreciate the services and the patient population, of course, they're veterans. So a lot of them deal with PTSD. A lot of them deal with things that you aren't necessarily exposed to in dental school. So it had a different feel to it just because of the nature of the patients and the situation. Um, so my first day, because of course I, my husband was still in Nashville. I moved to Memphis. You know, I had, uh, you know, I was staying in like a little loft apartment. And so of course, in my mind, I'm like, I'm away from my husband. This is new. I never, you know, I never went to Memphis like that. So I don't know anybody. Um, so it was kind of, it was challenging for me just on a personal level, not anything dealing with, you know, um, like the practice as a whole. Um, I wasn't terrible in oral surgery. So oral surgery was like my most favorite part of the GPR experience. I extracted a lot of teeth. I placed implants. I restored a lot of implants. So my oral surgery background, and I even, the chief even wanted me to apply to the oral surgery residency before I left. Um, and I really considered it, but then I was like, mm, I'll, do I want to do four years of oral surgery, what have you? So I decided against it. But like I said, those experiences that I had um, there did help me, uh, especially when I when I moved on and had a couple of employment positions back in Nashville. Um, I really leaned heavily onto what I learned in oral surgery and, and my style of extraction and, um, you know, avulopathy, things like that. Um, I definitely took from that GPR experience. And so I'm going to actually piggyback off of Dr. Fennell because what she said was very important when, like, when I applied to programs, like, I don't have a family or I don't have a, a husband. So with me, I'm applying all over the place. I'm in all these different states. And I feel like when you're applying to these programs, you really have to take into consideration, like, where do I want to be? You know, how would this impact my family? And um, when you interview, you're not, they're not just interviewing you, you're interviewing them as well. Because can you see yourself with these people, with these attendings? You know, do you think that it'll be a nurturing environment? Do you think it's a really competitive environment? Because you have to live in that for a year or two years or how many years you're ever, you're going to do your residency. So I think that's really important when you're looking for a program. So maybe your first day, you, you don't want your first day to be stressful. So you, when you're there, you're actually interviewing them, like seeing what the personality and what the cohorts would be like. So I think that's really important. Yeah, those are a lot of good things to consider, um, especially when selecting your residency and everything is looking into the future. Um, so then with that, like post-residency, um, what do you think is the best route to take? Uh, DSOs, solo private practice, associateships. Um, what has your experience been, uh, Dr. Porsche Fennell? And 
Dr. Morris, what were you considering since you're going to be graduating soon? I'm in, I'm on the fence. I, I'm going to let Dr. Fennell enlighten us because um, I think there's a lot of pros and cons to going like DSO or private practice. Um, I know like with private practice, you, there's a lot of um, burdens and say you're an owner doctor and you have to take on a lot of responsibility. So, and then with DSOs, um, you, you're under the umbrella of um, a corporation. So I'm going to let Dr. Fennell, I think she may have more experience with that. Yes, ma'am. Are y'all ready? Because this, yeah, it's a lot. Drop tea, um, drop the tea. I've done a lot. Tea. I've done, um, in the short time that I have graduated from Harry, I have done everything except work for corporate. So uh, when I first came back to Nashville, I was trying to get a job with Matthew Walker because I wanted to do National Health Service course. So I was trying to go the community health route. Well, um, you know, of course, with community health, they get a lot of grants and stuff from HRSA. And so a lot of your salary depends on whether they have money or not to fund, you know, your salary. Um, because some of them, some of them will group like you get in the um, National Health Service Corps because the National Health Service Corps gives you that money. So they may not pay you as much in the salary. Um, and so you just have to be prepared for that. Well, when I was about to come back, they could not get, get a contract for me together. And I was like, I need a contract by April because my program is up in June and I need a job by July because I need money. So, of course, um, I didn't hear anything back from them. So I was like, OK, what am I going to do during the process of me, you know, wrapping up things with the GPR? I did have an interview with a couple of DSOs. I interviewed with um, Affordable Dentures. I interviewed with Aspen. I interviewed with um, Pacific Dental, I think it was. So I've interviewed at every single. So if you want. I pretty much can tell you each recruiter script and each question they're going to ask you. So if you want to get super specific, I can get as specific as you want. Um, and when I interviewed at Affordable Dentures, I'll tell you a, a story since, you know, because I, I want you guys to get it because I think a lot of this is missed when we're in school because you have this grandiose idea that once you have this doctorate degree that people are going to love you your patients are going to love you your experiences are going to be just awesome you're going to love practicing dentistry from the time you step out of Tumahari to the time you retire and that's that is unfortunately not the case. So when I went, um, I did a working interview because a lot of DSOs will ask you to do a working interview. The working interview is paid. It just depends. Sometimes they'll pay you a full day because we're asking. I think they start everybody off at five hundred dollars is like the daily minimum that you can make. So some of them start at five. Um, I think this one particular I did was like two fifty because I was only going to do half a day or something like that. So I get there and the office manager or the person that's like over everything, she takes me to this whiteboard, you know, like this marker board. And it's a whole bunch of figures on this board. This is the first thing she takes me to when I walk in there. 
And she's like, you see this board? You see these numbers? We're behind on our numbers. We're going to choose like we're going to have to work on Saturday to make up for the money that we haven't made, you know, because I think it was like a snowstorm or something that came through Nashville and nobody could get there. So it was like she was like, we're behind on our revenue. We got to get this and get that. And I'm sitting here thinking, I'm like, first of all, hello, good morning. How are you doing? You know, yes, I'm here to interview. Um, but, you know, like showing me those numbers, that just let me know off the rip that they care about numbers. They will hound you if your production is down and they're like, oh, well, this month you were at 83% and now you're at 81%. That's not good. You know, they're going to hound you about numbers. And that's why I stress to a lot of the students, please consider doing a GPR and building your speed before you consider a DSO. Because I know a lot of DSOs will say, oh, well, you can have mentors. We'll bring people in. You know, we'll help you out. You know, we'll, they, that is a lie. That is a lie. Their number one goal is to make money. I mean, that's how they make, that is what they want is money. They don't care anything about nurturing you. They don't care anything about your experience or you don't want to do a certain procedure. If these um, people are paying you like, like Heartland, Heartland Dental, they'll say, we'll send you to do endo. We'll send you, you will train you on the wave one goal. You know, we'll train you on the CIRAC. Don't you, those people expect you to produce if they send you to do that training and they pay for you to do that training. You're not going to be referring out Mola Endo. You're not going to be you're not going to be sending out crowns to the lab and you're supposed to be using that CIRAC machine. So those are just things that they don't tell you when you interview because they want you to come in and feel like, oh, my God, you know, this is how they're going to take care of me, blah, 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 blah. Uh, one company told me that they would um, pay you a base salary for six months. And then after those six months, you will go down to production. I mean, and you know, you have to really distinguish between production and collections because those two things are completely different. And, um, you know, after having that experience with that lady, when she was talking about all those numbers and everything, I was like, okay, well, you know, this might not be for me. Uh, luckily the recruiter called me and they were, he was like, because what they wanted me to do, they wanted me to leave my residency like a month before I graduated. Sir, I'm not going to do that. That's dumb. I'm going to come get my certificate because I work for it because I want it. And then I'm going to look for something else. So if I felt like if you can't wait on me, that's the other thing. Don't let these people pressure you into leaving or doing anything that you, you know, you know, you don't feel like you should do because they'll always have a job opening because they have so, uh, so much high turnover. If you really wanted to get another job, I mean, you could get a job, you know, like it's just, it's not that big of a deal. But once I did that and I didn't get that, you know, um, I reached out to actually to Dean Farmer Dixon and I told her, I said, look, I said, I need a job. I'm willing to come back and be on faculty. What can you do for me? And she really looked out for me. So my first job out of residency was actually being on faculty at Meharry. And I loved it. Like I said, Meharry for me is home. Meharry has has a very I have a very soft spot in my heart for Meharry 
just because they gave me a chance when nobody or no other school was trying to accept me and other schools trying to tell me I need to take the DAT over and over again to get my score high, you know, whatever the case may be, they gave me a, a chance. And so I felt like I felt obligated to come back and give back of my time, everything, even though I knew salary wise, I wasn't going to be where my classmates were. I still needed a job. And I mean, I, it was the opportunity that I had at the time. And so I did faculty. So of course my, my end goal was to be on faculty once I retired from clinical practice. So I kind of did things backwards. And so I enjoyed my time at Meharry. I did, but I realized that the longer I stayed at Meharry, the harder it was going to be for me to get a clinical job once I finished. And so I started applying and they were like, oh, well, you technically you didn't really practice because you were on faculty. And I'm like, well, helping the students and training the students, if they can't finish the procedure, I have to sit down and do it. Like, what do you mean I'm not practicing? But in their eyes, you know, being a part on faculty, it's like you don't know what you're doing clinically, which is not always the case. I mean, some people have are very talented. They just like teaching, you know, like that's just something that they like to do. So I decided to leave Meharry and I actually um, completed. Um, I actually went into community health. So that job um, was very challenging as well. Uh, so if you guys remember the same thing I said, the patient population actually makes a difference when it comes to where you work. What type of mental status are these people in? A lot of people, not everybody in community health, so I don't want to group people in a category, but a lot of people that come in community health, they do have, they are at a disadvantage back, you know, at some type of socioeconomic background, or like I said, mentally, they're not all the way there, or they've had drug abuse issues, you know, so you have to couple all of those things into one. And um, when I did it, at first I was like, okay, well, this is okay, you know, um, but the way that that, um, they, that uh, community health was structured, um, you could only have one provider per location. So that was my first experience in being a lead dentist by myself, running a clinic by myself. So even though we had a supervisor that was over us, that supervisor really was not that helpful when it came to support and, you know, like making sure that everybody was taken care of. It was kind of like um, that clinic is your problem. You deal with it, you know. And so that was very stressful in itself. And I didn't I mean, I didn't own that practice. I mean, I, you know, like why is all of this falling on me? But I was like, OK, I'm going to, you know, stick with it. And at that time, I was able to apply for National Health Service. So I did sign up for loan repayment um, with them. I worked at that job about six months before um, I was able to get it. I think it was like eight months later when I actually got the money to, to do the loan repayment. Um, and so, of course, once you sign up for that, you have to give two years. Now, I think they can you can do three years and get like one hundred and twenty thousand or something like that, um, which is greater than because I only got fifty thousand uh, when I did it for two years. So I think money wise that that could help somebody out a little bit more, you know, put a dent in it. But honestly, that fifty thousand only paid for the interest on my student loans for six months. 
and I was still paying on my loans, mind you, while I was working there. And again, my salary was not as much as some of my colleagues were making. So again, you have to weigh the option of, okay, am I okay with getting less of a salary and, you know, trying to get this little bit of money for my loans or should I just go work somewhere else that I know I'm going to generate the salary? I can afford to pay my my student loans, my other bills, you know, everything like that. And so, um, but that job was so stressful. It wasn't really fulfilling. Um, I hated going in. I was just like, you know, I'm done with it. So I walked away from that. Um, and I know that, um, that, you know, I took a, a risk in doing that, but I felt that, um, I, nobody can put a price on my peace of mind um, and your mental sanity. A lot of people don't talk about that when you are feeling a certain way and you need to talk to somebody and you are going through things, do things that's best for you. Don't worry about what other people say. Don't worry about how much it costs, because at the end of the day, if you're sitting somewhere and you're broken down, you're no good for nobody. You know, you're not good for yourself, your family. If you have a spouse, children. You're just not good for anybody. And so um, upon me leaving, that's when I purchased the practice that I, I currently have now. Uh, purchasing a practice and own, practice ownership wasn't something that I dreamed about. It wasn't like, oh, my God, I've always dreamed about, you know, owning my own practice. I never was one of those people. It just so happened that every time I applied to corporate jobs, particularly in the Nashville area, they always gave me some type of excuse why they wouldn't hire me. They would say, well, you just don't have enough experience or, well, we're looking for the right fit or, you know, it was always something else. And I just realized that area location matters too when it comes to opportunity. So if you notice that certain areas are gearing towards certain people or, you know, like just if you keep seeing that and it's a trend and that means that's how it really is, you know, in that particular location. Um, and so, like I said, for me, it was just that nothing was panning out for me, particularly in the Nashville area as far as DSO. Now, if I had been, you know, in Atlanta, I'm sure I wouldn't have had a problem. Or if I was in a different area, I'm sure I wouldn't have had an issue with getting a job in a corporate, you know, location. It just so happened where I'm located right now, it just wasn't working out. Um, and so, of course, going from one, you know, kind of tumultuous situation to owning a practice, that's a different stressor. Um, it is a lot of responsibility. It is stressful when you have to worry about um, making payroll, paying somebody else's salary. You still have to pay your rent. You still have to pay your loans, you know, your malpractice insurance. So you think about some of those DSOs include malpractice insurance. That is a big, a big chunk. I pay over almost $400 for my malpractice a month you know, just in malpractice. So that's just putting things into perspective. So in some instances, working for a DSO um, is more better financially because you don't have to come out of pocket for different things. Um, and, you know, um, and I have to have business insurance. I have to have, you know, it's just different things that come along with owning a, owning a business. 
Do I regret any decision or any job that I've had? Um, no, I've learned from each one. Each one wasn't perfect. I made mistakes along the way. I mean, obviously you live and you learn. And um, if I had to do it over again, I would say if anyone is interested in private practice, please either get get under somebody that you can be an associate with that you can actually learn the business because that was one piece that I was missing. I did not have any experience whatsoever in business, like just business period, like running a business, you know, budgeting numbers with business, all of that stuff. Get under somebody that you can do that with or work in a group practice. So, of course, with COVID, I had to shut down my practice. I lost revenue for two months. I didn't make any money. I didn't get unemployment. What am I doing? You know, like what what can I do? And um, it was really, really difficult. And so when you think about all those and COVID isn't going going anywhere for a little while even after the vaccine it's still going to be traces of covid so it's not like we're going to ultimately escape this thing completely um so you have to think about that and so in the beginning i wasn't open to partnership with practice i wasn't open to group practice with um uh, private practice but now i'm like shoot if i could have a partner yeah yeah um, if I was in a group practice and I could share the responsibility of all the financial strain, yeah, you know what I'm saying? So the second time around, I would say I wouldn't even, you. and again, I purchased a practice that, so they already had patients there and everything, but that person had been there for like 16 years. So if you're not prepared to hear, oh, Dr. So-and-so not here anymore. Oh, well, he didn't do it this way or she didn't do it that way. If you're not prepared to be compared to that, that person you coming behind and actually following like and doing what they were doing, you know, in the practice, because when I came in, I want to establish my own own, you know, my own ways of doing things. And, and a lot of times I was met with opposition from the patients because they were used to doing what Dr. So-and-so was doing. And so for me, I almost feel like it's easier to start a practice from scratch because those patients will be used to you. They'll be used to your philosophies, used to your practices, used to your fees. Because when I came in, I didn't keep the same fee schedule that person had. So I changed the fee schedule. Of course, that meant that the the some of the fees increased. And again, like I said, it was a battle of well, I didn't. He didn't ever charge that much, or he didn't ever do whatever, whatever. Well, I'm the owner now, so you have to get used to that. And a lot of times, they don't respect us women in general women of color in general i've had same issues with that as well when it's coming from a woman a woman of color anything like that 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 is a problem for some patients and i don't mind if you decide to leave the practice because you don't want to you don't want to for me to serve you and that's fine i don't have an issue with that i'm not going to lose any sleep over it anybody that doesn't want to to um, experience, you know, what I have to offer, that is totally fine. But I would definitely say if that is something that you're interested in, please make sure that you 
that you practice in a place where you were able to be nourished, where you were able to grow, where you were able to foster a love of dentistry. Because like I said, every day it's not going to be where you are so in love with dentistry or you're so in love with what you're doing. But when it gets to the point where it's like, mm, I hate it, I don't like it, you know, I don't know what I want to be a dentist anymore, then that's when you you have to kind of draw the line. And um, and I mean, you know, I could go on and on and on, but that's just a little snippet of the experience I've had with all the jobs that I've had. Um, and so once I finish with private practice, what I would like to do is, like I said, either group practice or a partnership with somebody just because, um, like I said, I've been out here on my own and it's not a lot of fun. Yes. So, so yeah. So like I said, you know, nobody is perfect. You know, like I said, you get into it and you thinking, you think that it's one way. And again, I want to disclaim, these are just my personal experiences. Other people's experiences may be totally different, you know, than what I'm saying, but at least you can kind of gather an idea for yourself. So you can kind of guide yourself on what is it that I want? What is it that I that I need? I will also say for the people, the um, the listeners that are married, that may have a spouse or children or something like that. Um, please don't don't limit uh, your you know, don't limit your opportunities just because you have a significant other or children or something like that, because there's always ways that you can work around certain things, because then you're going to look up, you'll be like, man, I should have did that. Why didn't I do that? And then you end up kind of having like a little resentment feeling not towards your family but just because you feel like you missed the opportunity or you might have missed out on something because you chose to to stick around or stay somewhere you know that you thought was going to be good for um for your family and of course like I said because then you're going to end up searching for something for so long (laughs) that you don't you don't even remember why you became what you became so that's just my two cents on the whole dso versus private practice you know all of that and i definitely appreciate that dr porsche Fennell. um and that actually really leads into our next question of what piece of business and financial advice that you would have given your younger self so i know you elaborated on, you know, not just jumping into uh, just purchasing a practice and following behind someone else or getting into a group and starting off fresh. Uh, Were there any more pearls that you wish you might have known, like even to us as dental students or just prior to that? Yes, I definitely say, number one, read the fine print. When you and and because a lot of people are going to throw contracts at you left and right. If you do not have legal support or someone that can legally advise you on those contracts, you don't know the questions to ask. Like a lot of people, the common ones are like non-compete clauses that, you know, they may have in there. Um, Another one is like the percentage of production or collection that they may pay you. All of that is pretty much standard. You need to look at 
if I got to get up out of here, what do do I have to pay anything to get out of this contract? Do what's the time frame on this contract? So my first experience with that was actually signing that um, that National Health Service course contract, because when I broke the contract, I, that means I have I am liable to have to pay them back the money that they gave me because I didn't stay the full. I stayed at their job longer than two years, but because they do their own time frame, you can only take off so many days. And by that point, I had already had two children. So only taking off a certain number of days was not going to work for me. So each day that you take over the amount of days that are allowed, you have to make those up. And every time you don't make those up, it's like your your uh, days just keep adding on and adding on and adding on. So when I looked at it, I was like, this is going to be a never ending cycle. I'm never going to get out of this job because I'm going to keep on taking off because I need my mental sanity. And I'm just going to I mean, so I felt like it was better for me to pay my way out of that. Thing. I didn't care what the amount was. I felt like it was better for me to pay my way out of it than stay. It was just one of those one of those things. The second thing I learned was that when you sign a lease, I mean, and this is for like apartment, house, whatever the case may be, they put certain stipulations in there. My landlord would not budge on me having somebody else take over my lease. That's a huge problem because when I try to sell the practice, if I'm if my lease is not up, I have to pay him money. Because he's going to want his money, even though he's going to get another renter in there. He wants what he wants from me. That's the other thing. It's like these people want you to sign. It's basically like you signing your life away. Just every time you look at something, please read the fine print. Another thing that I learned was that especially with starting a private practice, it is so important that you have a savings. When I got it, I stepped out on face. I didn't have, I mean, cause like I said, I wasn't planning. This was not something that I was planning on doing. So it wasn't like I was saving up for months and I had a, you know, a little nest egg that I was just keep holding on to. So when I did go out, you know, I was able to still have an income while I was trying to grow the practice. I didn't have that. And so even when I purchased the practice, I didn't have a lot of working capital. I didn't have any working capital. so. That was pretty much difficult, too, because I was pretty much starting from scratch, didn't have anything. So it's like, please do yourself a favor. If that's what you are going to do, save up. The banks will ask you. And I'm kind of funny about banks because um, banks will have you sign certain stuff they will have you do certain stuff to get you know bank of america will tell you oh yeah we'll approve you for eight hundred thousand dollars for a for a practice yeah they will and then they're going to expect you to pay the five thousand dollar uh you know a loan note that come along with it to have your million dollar practice so is that even something that you want to get into at the you know at that time I don't like to tell people, you know, you're not limited because you have student loans or maybe because you might have credit card debt or something like that. You aren't limited because, you know, God is unlimited, you know, so he can. I mean, if if it's meant for you, it's going to happen regardless. But 
um, you can save yourself some heartache in the, you know, like during the process or anything like that, just by doing those small things, being financially set. Um, when I was in dental school, I wish that somebody would have talked to me more about financial planning, like, you know, retirement ahead of time, um, IRAs, um, different things like that, that you could do to put some extra, like if you had any extra money, putting those things back so that they could already start growing. So when you get out, you don't have to just start like, oh my God, now I have to figure out how to start my retirement plan or, you know, getting into stock. You know, if you have a little extra money, get in. Yeah, I mean, you know, get you a little Robin Hood or something, put you some, you know, $25, $50 in there, play with some of the stocks a little bit. You know what I'm saying? Like get, get more financially literate. When I was growing up, my mom was, would just be like, as long as your bills is paid, you can get whatever you want. So, you know, like, when I was in dental school, my rent was always paid. Everything was always paid. But I was always like, okay, once I pay my bills, I'm finna go, you know, get some Jordans. I'm finna go buy some shoes. And now I'm more like, okay, no, I'm not going to spend that. Like when I went to Italy, you know how much a Gucci bag costs? $300. I'm not spending $1,000 on no Louis Vuitton bag or no Gucci bag. That's dumb. And I done seen, and the people they make it in Italy for $300. I mean, it's real, real leather, leather soft, you know, like I, you know, I, it's just things like that, that I wish. And, and that's the issue that we have in the black community because we equate success to material things. And I wish we would stop doing that. I'm guilty of it. Yeah. I had a Mercedes, but guess what? When I had them kids, I got me a Chrysler because I ain't got time to be taking that Mercedes to the dealership and spending $200, $300 every time I get an oil change. That's just me personally because my, that's my bank, the way my bank account set up, I got daycare to pay for. So I had to rearrange my money situation. Now, if you single, ready to mangle, you got a little bit to the side, you might have a little bit more money to play with. And like I said, it's nothing wrong with having nice things. It's nothing wrong with want to carry a Gucci bag and a Louis bag. But at the same time, if you doing all of that and you don't have a savings or you don't have, you know, money in your bank account, that's backwards. You know, when you look at Warren Buffett, he living in the same house he was living in. I know he on pay hundred some thousand for it. He ain't not here trying to buy a mansion. He could if he wanted to, but think about how the rich stay rich. So that's why I'm like financial literacy for us, especially as people, because that's something we don't talk about in our community is so important. And also mental health is so important. My younger self, if I could spend more time meditating, more time with myself, just kind of figuring out something, because even though you, you know, and a lot of us have our own personal story, and I'm sure this for, if you want me to come back another time, personal stories, but um, a lot of things from childhood you carry. Some things you don't realize were trauma or, you know, some things that might have happened to you or something somebody said to you and it stuck with you. Those things, um, uh, it, it kind of defines how you make decisions in life. And so when you make those decisions based on those things of childhood, it's kind of like a subconscious thing where you're not even thinking about it. Go talk to somebody. You know what I mean? Like you might not feel like you have daddy issues, but you keep getting that same man 
that's keep doing the same thing it might not be them it might be you it might be something going on so let's talk about mental health and like i say especially in the field in the field that we're in it is very stressful because we are working in a small space we are thinking we are always critically thinking problem solving people always come in with problems you know like i got this problem i need you to solve it right now today they want answers like right now today so you know just having that little piece of mental health for yourself is so important it's so important like like i said it was no amount of money that i it was was worth my peace of mind i just you know i'm at that point in my life right now so i agree with dr um Fennell. if i could say something like if i could go back for five six years ago i would start um you know, working on your credit, make sure your credit is good, start paying off some bills. Cause I know as students, you know, we're out here, we may have a credit card here or there. So work on your credit. And like she said, um, become financially literate because um, when we leave, yeah, you'll make a lot of money, but you'll be in debt. And um, you, when you make this money, you can't just be out here trying to live beyond your means. So um, as a student, continue to, you know, save, like she said, and um, just work on your credit and to, to just basically, so when you leave here, you'll know what to do with your money. And like she said, too, invest, 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 learn the stock market. Um, I started investing a little while ago, and I, I literally just started with putting $25 here, $50 there, and then to just see it and watch it grow and ask questions. And I know a lot of people, you want to take classes on learning how to do endos or Sarac, but take some financial, some financial classes to just, you know, learn that field because with us, we'll be working with, um, especially if you go into like private practice, you're going to have to deal with a lot of money. And, and when you go out here, and your credit score is bad and you're trying to get a house or you're trying to get a practice, you know, they look at all of that. So as a student, I would say work on your credit, you know, don't take out, don't have a whole bunch of credit cards, you know, don't live beyond your means because, you know, one day you will get everything that you're working for. Like you'll get the house, you'll get the car, but don't try to get that now. Don't try to get the Gucci bag now. Don't try to get, you know, the Gucci belt to match it. You know, just live, you know, in your little apartment, you know, save up and just know that later on at the end of the tunnel, you'll you'll have everything that you need plus plus some. So Yeah, and that's that's some excellent advice. I know that I can definitely apply that now. Um, because we're trying to figure out how to uh invest some of our refund checks or just put some aside um, just so that we can prepare for the future. I mean, these past few years that I've been here in Nashville have honestly flown by. I can't even believe that I'm a third year right now. <laughs> um, and I know I can say the same for a lot of my classmates. Um, but even in the midst of everything right now and um, being in a pandemic, uh, I know Dr. Port. Porsche Fennell, um, you said that you had to close down for two months. And Dr. Morse, um, I know that it was your 
senior year um, that uh, at least the later half of that spring semester that was taken away. Um, how did COVID-19 impact the both of you? So, yeah, so since I'm a 2020 grad, I got the, you know, the first part of COVID and we were out of school for maybe like two months and then we came back and tried to finish up everything. But um, with God, you know, I finished on time. I was able to get my license and everything like that. But as a resident, we have not stopped. It feels like everybody wants to come and get their teeth <laughs> get their teeth fixed in COVID. But um, of course, you know, being one of the frontline workers and we are, we are facing COVID every day and especially working in a hospital, you get to see how life-changing it is. And um, I feel like I'm glad that I'm able to work within this. Um, I know every day and like my parents and everyone, you know, they're like, worried about our safety and if you if we get COVID and trying to make sure that we take the proper precautions but I feel like um, even though we aren't medical doctors we signed up to be able to be people that help and um, I think that here at Meharry at this at this residency we've been able to do that we we're still on the ground we're still rolling we still see a lot of patients and um, when you're over in the hospital, you just see like how how big of an impact it is and um, how serious the pandemic actually really is. Yeah, for me, for the most part, it was um, like I said, it was very difficult to um, uh, reopen once I had closed for those uh, two months. And um, even before then, for me in private practice, it was it was pretty slow. It was like I had some good weeks and, you know, like people came. And so I don't know whether it was like the beginning of people starting to kind of trickle out. And so then, um, you know, after we reopened, so I reopened like maybe the third week of May and I had shut down like the third week of March. So it was about two months. Um a lot of people were really scared to come back to the dental office. They were like, well, what's your policy? What are you doing? So of course I had to put out what I was doing on, you know, my website, everything like that. Like, you know, we're checking temperatures, we're doing screenings, you know, we have air purifiers in there. Um, so one of the stressors was trying to get PPE and I did not, you know, um, as a, as a private office, if you weren't ordering in bulk, um, you couldn't get access to like the N95 masks, like, you know, the face shields, you know, prices were just like really like outrageous, like a hundred dollars for 10 disposable gowns. Like, you know, who, who's gonna, who can afford that? And you're upon, you know, reopening and you haven't had income or revenue or production or anything in two months. And so just the the struggle of trying to reopen was a lot. And then after reopening, and of course, like I said, because in the beginning, you know, it was patients. Some patients really were like, oh, I don't really care. But then I had some patients that were resistant to my policy. 
they left nasty messages on on you know the phone like i would not be made to wear a mask and you can't tell me i'll just go somewhere else okay go somewhere else but my policy hasn't changed and i promise you wherever else you go they're going to tell you the same thing so you're not going to escape that um so you know and then eventually like they caught on that this is not going to change no my waiting area is not open you're not going to sit in here don't bring extra people with you to the appointment that kind of thing and of course as it progressed so um you know people ask well did you get the ppp loan yes but people don't even uh, like i feel like when people see things on the news or whatever and they don't really understand it they just think that the ppp loan was just like this massive amount of money that they gave to you know like uh offices to try to help them recover and that wasn't the case it just depended on you know how much revenue you made you know it, it was a lot of factors that went into the amount of money that you received and of course the smaller your office or you know the smaller your payroll the smaller the loan was and again let's say it was a loan it was not free money it was a loan it had to go through a bank so if you did not fulfill the requirements again that's that fine print I was talking about if you didn't fulfill the requirements of uh the the because even like they were like writing the ppp loan like stipulations as they were giving it out so it wasn't even like they had a set like okay you do xyz and you're definitely going to get this forgiven so of course a lot of people were like well i don't want an extra burden of an extra loan that i'm gonna have to pay back and y'all can't even tell us like what the you know like what the stipulation is for it to be forgiven like completely forgiven not just like a portion of it forgiven um, I have applied for over 20 grants. I got maybe, I got one out of the 20 that I applied for. And it was not a big grant. I'm thankful for, you know, any type of grant money that I could receive. Um, but it was just so many people applying for the same pots of money. Um, and, you know, when you find out about a, a specific grant, sometimes it's already like the, the, you know, the application deadline has passed or they've reached their max or they've run out of money. Um, so, like I said, it's not it wasn't just me personally going through that as a small business owner. It was a lot of people going through that and even going through, um, you know, towards the end of the year it has still been you know situations where you know I'm still trying to recover um, in the midst of COVID um, I did keep one employee on um, uh, that employee is no longer with uh, with uh, you know the office and so um, it was just a lot of things with that um, that comes along with and that just comes along with being a business owner because you have to be an HR person so you know, those are just all kind of different, different things. Um, so for me, it has been a, a little different with, you know, the COVID situation. Um, like I said, we do still have people calling and say they don't want to, you know, they want to push their appointment out. They want to wait to be seen. And, you know, they're listening to the WHO organization that says, um, 
you know, um, postpone your, your dental treatment, you know, that kind of thing. So, I mean, it's just so much information floating out there. Um, and in the private practice realm, it does affect how patients respond and how they react and, you know, whether they want to come in, whether they don't, um, whether they accept treatment or not. Some of them, you know, they're like, well, I'll just wait till my, you know, insurance renews the next year or, you know what I mean? Because they don't want to spend extra money, you know, or anything like that. So it's just a lot of elements that go along with, um, and like I said, COVID isn't going anywhere. So, you know, what do you do next year, you know, or, or the year after that? Um, because, you know, uh, we are in the midst of a vaccine, but, you know, is it going to be effective? How are people, you know, are people going to take it? You know, like, you, so it's a lot of unknowns that are happening, you know, right now um, in the midst of everything. Um, but, you know, if your goal, I mean, you're already in dentistry, just stick with it. You know what I mean? Like I said, this will be a good time since we are talking about GPRs or, you know, residency programs. This is a great time if you were considering doing that to do that. A lot of schools are being very lax on their requirements on different things. You know what I'm saying? So if you were a person that might have not had, you know, a, a high, high GPA or something like that, you may be able to slide on in somewhere because they're not really looking at, you know, they're not really honing in like they would typically do because now you're having Zoom interviews, you're having, I mean, so a lot of that takes away from having to be as personable in person because you have to look a certain way or you have to, you know, carry yourself a certain way. So some of that is that's um, taken away because you're doing virtual. So you don't even have to really worry about a lot of different elements that somebody that actually had to go in had to worry about. So, you know, I, you know, I just say take advantage of the things you can during this time, you know, while it is kind of lax because of COVID. And then after that, just kind of, you know, do what you need to do. Yeah. And those are, um, yeah, a lot of things that are uh, <laughs> being impacted because of COVID and everything. Um, and it, it is a sad situation just hearing the amount of PPE and Dr. Morrison, that impacting the rest of her senior year. Um, and we all know how it is impacting us now um, being in dental school. Um, but uh, what advice would you give to someone who's aspiring to apply for um, a GPR? So I feel like... <laughs> I was a very active person while I was in dental school. I was really active in ASDA, SNBA, and AWD, and things of that nature. And I feel like that helped me um, be a better candidate for applying to AEGDs and GPRs. Um, I think everyone that's going through this COVID, I, I believe that they should do a GPR, AEGD, just because. Um, you know, like they said, like you all said, the requirements and everything are really laxed right now. But when you are applying, just think about if you're a freshman and you're just getting your feet wet, just become active in something, you know, find whatever organization that suits you and feeds your soul and then just become active in it so that you can, um, 
you know, build up things on your C, your CV, I believe community service, do, do community service that, you know, speaks to you and something that you can actually relate to and talk about because when interviews and things like that come around, you'll probably have to speak on that. Um, think about who your letter writer and then ask them ahead of time. Like, don't be someone that's last minute and, you know, the deadline is next month and you're asking them about letters of recommendation. So, and actually build genuine relationships with your faculty members so that they can speak about you in a positive light and not just write generic um, letters. And right now, I'm actually on the... Um, interview committee for the GPR program here and I read all of the letters of recommendation so I don't know if everyone does but I do and you can tell when someone actually knows you when they don't and um, last but not least I know your GPA some people are fighting for these positions these high positions like oral surgery and things like that but I know with GPR your GPA could you know it doesn't really have to be like top of the class or anything like that but continue to strive to do better you know in your classes and actually learn this information and every opportunity that you have in clinic or on campus you know take that and learn from it because you will apply it to your program and I know a lot of us we feel like you know we're not ready for to get out in the real world and things like that but just know like your professors and your attendings they are preparing you for um programs and you when you get to the program you'll know like you know more than what you know than what you think you know um and last but not least let God just guide you because if it were me last if last year around this time I actually accepted a position in New York and I'm not there but um, I'm still in Nashville but I don't regret that I feel like this is this was the best decision for me and wherever you're supposed to end up God is going to put you there and um, whether you match or you don't match you know look at post-match options and um you know, don't be afraid that, you know, if you didn't get it the first time, you know, to still keep pushing on, pushing forward, because wherever you're supposed to be, God is going to put you right there in that place. And it's for you. I definitely agree with um, Dr. Morris, um, but I am going to put in a plug. I just released my ebook, which is called Destined for Dental School. Um, so if you guys want to check that out, um, it's located on gum road and I can give Taylor the information for that so she can post that. Um, but definitely in my book, I talk about, so I have different checklists that you can go through. Same thing Dr. Morse was saying about, um, I talk about respect in my book is one of the things because, um, some of the professors and like I said, because I've been on faculty and I've been a student. And one thing that faculty looks at, you know, they may not necessarily have uh, um, verbal interactions with students, but they can tell which students are really striving for excellence or really like they are really about their business. They see them, you know, they're always hardworking. So don't think because somebody's always looking at you. Somebody's always like saying, okay, let me check this person out. And I mean, that could be the difference between you getting nominated for scholarships in school, you know, like different things like that. So definitely 
be mindful of that. Like she said, don't be a procrastinator. If you know you need these letters, get those letters three months in advance so you don't have to worry about, oh my God, I don't have a letter. I don't have anybody, you know, that I can um, choose to, to write something for me. Make sure you have, you know, those people on hand. I use a lot of my, my classmates uh, for letters of recommendation too. You can't do that, you know, GPR, but think about when you go away, like if you're trying to get a license in another state and you need to get it by credentialing, you have to have letters of recommendation for some of these dental boards. So it's like you have to really um, think about and be um, intentional about the relationships that you have with people because people can, you know, put in words for you and get you into some situations that you may not necessarily be able to get in your yourself. And that is to the point, like she said, of God using people and you being in the right places to actually have whatever God has for you, you know, work out on, on that end. Um, so definitely, um, definitely do that um when it comes to um in when it comes to just trying to apply um to those places and definitely check my book out because like i said i do have a lot of um a lot of different things and i talk about my experiences with um uh interviews and different things like that like i kind of touched on my interview um you know at the va and how that was it was very um structured they they had like a list of questions that they went down not all interviews are very structured you know some people just ask you random questions and it may have nothing to do with dentistry so like Dr. Morris said, try to be well-rounded. When I was in college, I did do a lot of community service. Um, and, you know, I, you know, I did a lot of, of different things. Um, but also um, try to be adventurous. When I was in, um, in one of the stories I tell in my book, I went to, I did a program at the University of Washington in Seattle. And that had been like the, the furthest I had gone from my hometown. You know, I was just out there, but I loved it. I hiked Mount Rainier. I hiked down Suquamish Falls, which is a waterfall. So those experiences that I have, I was able to share with interviewers and they look like, oh, you know, you went, you hiked down this or you did that. And even talking with patients, they're surprised that I know about hiking or I know about uh, different waterfalls and different things like that. So that just makes you more of a well-rounded person some of that stuff you know and i talk about things that i'm not really interested in but it definitely helps to relate to people because in this business you have to know how to relate to to somebody you know because that's how you keep your patients coming in if you are a dry person nobody wants to come see a dry person even if they only see you for five minutes you want them to be like oh you know i really like talking with her or him or you know whatever case may be um you know you want people to enjoy their experience they have with you and some of those interviewers are actually looking for that too if you come in you're very static you you don't really seem like you have a great personality because some people don't that doesn't you know and like I said that you it could be a difference between somebody that has a 4.0 and they're static versus somebody that has maybe a 2.5 but they're so energetic and positive and their vibe is good they may end up getting the spot and you don't and you wondering why but it's because you don't have all of the pieces being smart is not the only reason why somebody will pick you to do a program or anything like that so you definitely need to be 
well-rounded. Like she said, you don't need your GPA needs to be good. Yes, you do need to strive, but at the same time, like she said, you do need to be well-rounded in a lot of aspects in order to stand out as a good candidate because now they have just passed fail. In the past, when I took it, we still had scores, so they could see a test score and say, oh, she made a 86 or she made a 70 something or whatever. But now because everything is past fail, what will make you stand out from the next candidate? What do you have to offer the program that you think other other students may not offer? Because everybody, you know, everybody that's trying to go in pedo probably has seen a dozen kids or they worked somewhere that had children, maybe Chuck E. Cheese or something like that. You know what I'm saying? So what's going to make you stand out versus that next candidate? And also, if your goal was to go to oral surgery or to do those things and you don't get in post-match to a GPR or AGD because most of the time some of those residencies like to see that you have done a GPR previously or that you had worked previously. I have a lot of colleagues that they they did GPRs. They actually worked as a general practitioner for two or three years and then they went back and applied to ortho or applied to pedo or whatever the case may be and then they got in that time and maybe they needed that time to hone in on some skills you know maybe it was life things it wasn't just like dental clinic related because I want to stress that too don't make your life just about dentistry don't make your life just about oh I'm picking up this handpiece because what if you can't pick up that handpiece anymore what if your what if something happens to you that you can't practice dentistry so what I mean to say don't put your identity in your career and what you do and who you are as a person because at the end of the day if you stop doing that and you're not recognized as dr so-and-so is that gonna crush you is that gonna really how, how are you gonna make it so don't don't define yourself by what you do for a living and I do that all the time. I don't, I don't, when I walk in the room, I don't tell people what I do for a living. That's not the first thing I announce out of my mouth because that's not what I want people to know. That's not, I want you to get to know me for who I am, not what I do or, or how much money you think I'm making or, you know, whatever the case may be. So please don't lose sight of that as well, because everything in the world is not all about dentistry. It's not all about clinics. It's not all about, you know, all of that stuff. It's something it's about something greater than than all of that. So let's not lose focus on that. That was excellent advice. Thank you so much, Dr. Porsche Fennell and Dr. Morris for being on the show. And are there any closing remarks that you guys have? I know you could uh, go ahead and say again where we can find that book, Dr. Porsche Fennell. Yes, it's located on um, Gumdrop um, slash L slash Destined for Greatness. Um, and I'll definitely shoot you that um, information for that. You can also follow me on Instagram at Destined Dental. I also have a Facebook page, um, Destined Dental, uh, where I post free advice and tidbits and different things like that. So check us out. Okay, yeah, I'm going to have to get your gum drop. <laughs> um, but, yeah, thank you for having me. Um, all I have is an Instagram. You can find me at uh, dr, so dr.morsecode, M-O-R-S-E-C-O-D-E. And 
I drop a lot of different things on there. So you can check me out on there, guys. Let's wrap things up and transition into Taylor's takeaways. And today I'd like to discuss how to deal with grief during the holidays. The ebb and flow of grief can become overwhelming with waves of memories, particularly during Valentine's Day, Thanksgiving and Christmas. Grief can also magnify the stress that is often already a part of the holidays. So how can you begin to feel the emptiness you feel when it seems that everyone else around you is overflowing with joy? Well, there are a few strategies that you can use to help get you through this time. So the first one is to set healthy boundaries. Um, You don't have to force yourself to face every holiday event or celebratory tradition. Um, If attending a tree lighting ceremony or participating in the office gift swap is likely to bring about too many painful memories um, of this year, then just be willing to say no. Um, Other people may try to convince you to participate, but just remember you don't have to try and please everyone. Plus, we have to be inside anyway it's a pandemic outside so um next uh find a way to honor your memories and create new traditions um create a special way to memorialize the person that you've lost as a new tradition whether you decide to light a candle every night or eat the loved one's favorite food um honoring your loved one can serve as a tangible reminder that although your loved one is gone the love never dies Next, do something kind for others. Even when you're in the midst of grief, you still have something to offer the world. Performing a few acts of kindness can really be good for a grieving spirit. Um, Donating gifts to families in need, serving meals at the soup kitchen, or even volunteering to improve the lives of others can help take the focus off of your loss. And the last one, ask for help. Don't be afraid to ask for help when you're struggling with the holidays. Reminding loved ones that you're having a rough time may be enough, but you also may want to reach out for more support. Looking for support groups or contacting a professional counselor may help you deal with grief in a healthy manner. So I know for me personally, um, since I did lose my mother last year due to breast cancer, I will certainly be um, implementing some of these strategies here. Um, And that's all I have for Taylor's takeaways. Uh, Happy holidays, be safe, and don't forget to wear your mask. If you like what you hear, be sure to follow us on Instagram at Pod for more updates on the show, and be sure to give us a shout out. Want to ask us questions or give suggestions on topics that you'd like to hear? Then email us at theocclusaltablepodcast at gmail.com. We love to hear feedback from our listeners, so don't forget to leave a thumbs up, five stars, and a review on whichever platform you're listening on. Well, that's all we have for today. So until next time, this is The, the Occlusal Table. Table.